There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello. Before the show starts, I want to tell you that Varvet is made in cooperation with Stutterheim Raincoats. And this is the beginning of December or sort of moving towards the middle of December. But I think if you're really fast, you still can buy some of your Christmas gifts or all of them on stutterheim.com. And I am still to meet a person who wouldn't love to get a gift from stutterheim.com. So go check out that website. And thank you so much, Stutterheim, for sponsoring the show. Now, let Warwick International begin. I think I've always been a storyteller in a way. Like, I think it's something that came quite naturally to me. And I think being a gay guy with a disability, I had a unique perspective. I had something to say. Hello and welcome to Varvet International with me, Christopher Triumph, and the 16th interview in this uh, rather uh, wonderful podcast of mine, if I may say so myself. Uh, some of you might have missed the information that Varvet comes out every other week for the time being, so now... Uh, in the sort of beginning of uh, December comes one episode and the next one comes out on Christmas Eve. And that's uh, a gift to the world as it contains one of my favorite actresses from two of my favorite TV shows over the last decade. The American version of The Office and my favorite show from 2014, Transparent. I am, of course, talking about the wonderful Melora Hardin. She's worth waiting for. But now let's focus on this week's guest, Greg Wallach. Now, this is one of the most inspiring people I've ever met. My Swedish audience might know that I've dabbled in the arts of performing stand-up comedy, but my material was nothing like that of Greg's. I just came up with the stuff, you know, uh, it could be uh, anyone's jokes. But the thing with Greg Wallach's material is that it's so personal, it's so true. And I want you to understand his work so i'll play you a clip we took it from youtube with greg's permission it's five minutes long and what you need to know like visually is that greg has cerebral palsy so he walks with crutches and the rest is that he talks into a microphone in front of an audience enjoy i was um sort of uh, going downtown the other day to meet a friend for brunch And um, I'm on the bus, and we're sort of riding along. And we pull up to the the next stop, and there's a woman in a wheelchair waiting to get on. And uh, I don't know, for just a second, I caught myself thinking, (sighs) I can't believe we have to wait for her. (laughs) 
I am already late. <laughs> she is holding everything up. Just when you thought I was sweet. <laughs> but I eventually made it downtown to brunch. And I'm sitting there with my friend, and she said, Greg, can I ask you sort of a personal question? And I said, sure, because, you know, I'm pretty open that way. And she said, Greg, is the reason that you're gay due to the fact that you're crippled and you can't get lucky with women? So, you know, you had no other choice but to sleep with men for sex. I was just kind of wondering. And I thought, oh my God, are you reading my mind? I was just thinking about that. Yes, that's exactly the reason I sleep with men. You see, it's a sad story, my life. Underneath it all, I'm actually a heterosexual man. That's not so funny. But because of my unfortunate, grotesque disfigurement, I was shunned by women and polite society and forced into the depravity of the underground world of man-to-man sex. Oh, I never much cared for sucking dick. But if I was going to get any action, I guess I'd better get used to it. And all the meanwhile inside of my chest beat the heart of a broken man. And, and my friend's like, um, that's nice, Greg. Um, could you pass the butter? But I explained to her that it was a matter of economics and weighing my options at the time. Do I waste my money on expensive female hookers or be gay? And I found that instead of wasting my money on expensive prostitutes, I could get free sex from gay men who have a discriminating eye for fashion, just not for sexual partners. It's funny because it's true. I decided that being gay was cheaper, but I had no idea of the hidden costs. The parades, the clothes, the expensive party drugs. Not to mention the apartment in Chelsea, a, a, a pretty daunting political agenda, and the painful anal shenanigans. Ouch! I never wanted to be gay, and I tried to fight it. But before long, I found I developed a strange addiction to crack. A different kind of crack. You know, the sacrifices that the disabled have to make in this country today due to lack of acceptance, it is shocking. So if you're out there and you're disabled, don't make the same mistakes I did. Don't let this happen to you. That's why I started my own foundation. It's called Fuck the Disabled. So if you're a woman, age 18 to 35, and you think you'd like to fuck the disabled, call us. 555-DISABLE. Are you attracted to subservient men? Well, crippled guys can barely stand up. 
Have you had a fantasy involving a midget or several midgets? <laughs> Call us, we can help. And you know what they say about mentally retarded men? Small intellect, big, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. So call us, 555-DISABLE. Fuck the disabled to keep the disabled from turning gay. Yes, Greg Wallach. I think you understand why I wanted you to hear the whole thing here. And I really love this uh, bit. It puts a smile on my face and we'll talk about that kind of humor or storytelling in a while. Now, he was born 44 years ago. He comes from California and he was kind enough to sit down with me in a basement in Laurel Canyon like two or three weeks ago. Now, let's just roll the tape. It's quite self-explanatory. Greg Wallach, ladies and gentlemen. Greg Wallach, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm I'm fine, thank you. It's uh, a little noisy around here. Everybody's like redoing their gardens and building houses around here. But at least now the the upstairs dog is silent, and they have also stopped working out because they were doing that. Oh, they were doing like their morning workout upstairs. At least I hope it was workout. <laughs> I was also going to ask you, who are you today? I'm a guy who's in a pretty good mood today, actually. I didn't get a lot of... I, I mean, I got a decent amount of sleep. Not as much as I wanted, but considering considering that, I'm in a pretty good mood for this uh, Wednesday morning. It's a fairly great day to be in L.A., It is a it is a little bit of a gray day in LA, but I think I tend to like a little bit of gray weather now and again. I don't know. I, I I'm often in a good mood when the weather's a little a little gray. Not if it stays gray for a long time, but since the weather is so gorgeous all the time in LA, a gray day almost feels a little bit special. Yeah. I'm sorry, though, that it comes when I'm here. Oh, uh, well, exactly. I, I was planning to sort of soak up sun for the long, long Swedish winter. But, uh, yeah. And that's the garden work. Now, someone wants to... That's all right. ...speak to you. It's okay. So, you were saying the the winters are very uh, long... And grim, yeah. And grim. So is there a time of year, well, like gardening, speaking of gardening, for instance, is there a time of year when you, do you do any sort of planting or gardening outside? Yes, we do have, I mean, it's not permafrost in Sweden. Uh-huh. So we do have like three months of summer and we're super happy about that. And the rest of the year we're super depressed. Oh. Typically, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but... That's basically true. Is it possible for you to put that in flight mode? Because I'm I'm afraid that it's going to... Yeah, I'm just it. shutting it down now. Yeah, thank you. Sorry about that. No worries. I'm sorry to interrupt the interview. Not a problem. But I am... <laughs> that was me. Sorry about that. I'll just check that it's... <laughs> it's so funny because my phone is usually so quiet. <laughs> and so it's not until we turn on the mics that the phones go off. I was talking to a friend about that yesterday, that he has this um, trouble with his relations. And, uh, you know, that it's how you say that you don't get what you want until you stop looking for it. 
I guess. Maybe that's what our phones are doing today. We're super popular while not wanting to be. Exactly. Yeah. When we're not look when we're not seeking it out. Exactly. Do you do you believe that concept in the universe? Do you think things really work like that? Relationships work like that where you're say you're looking for love or you're looking for a job and people people do seem to think that it works that way. Oh, the minute I stopped looking, I met the perfect person or I got the perfect opportunity. But do you think that the that the universe really works that way or do you think it's us making that connection? That's a really interesting question. Do you have an answer? <laughs> I don't know, there does seem to I mean I don't know if I believe in an interventionist kind of outside power beyond us, but there does seem to be something at work there where we're pushing and pushing and pushing in one direction and then the minute we sit back like a cat it's like a you know i used to have a cat and i feel like sometimes it's very similar to a cat like you want to pay it to you want the cat to love you you want the cat to come and sit with you you want to hug the cat and hold the cat and the cat wants nothing to do with it and then the moment that you you're fine and you let the cat be the cat sort of comes to you and so i do think there's something at, at work there i don't know it seems there seems to be something at work there but i don't i'm conflicted a little in my beliefs whether or not there's sort of an exterior external interventionist kind of universe because i'm not sure i believe that but there does seem to be a slightly magical quality happening Yeah, but I think that we put out so much more energies than we are aware of. Yeah. And if you are in a bar and there are many singles there, the person that is newly married is going to get the most attention, I guess, because that's the one who who is so hard to achieve. Uh-huh. Uh, to sort of hitch up with. Uh-huh. So we all want to meet the married person then in a, in a way perhaps. Okay. I don't know. Interesting. We want what's not what's <laughs> beyond reach perhaps. Perhaps, yeah. I think so. Well, if that's true then why why are we making it so why are we designing something that's uh that makes it so difficult on ourselves? Why not make an easier choice? <laughs> oh, I'm not sure that I believe in the principles of Darwinism, but if it exists, I mean if Darwin was right that the survival of the fittest thing works out, maybe you want the absolutely fittest person even if that's beyond reach oh interest that's an interesting idea so maybe that sort of builds into right like housing as well i don't i can't afford living up here but i would like to do that so if you if you go into the room and you see the status of the newly married you're sort of um survive if i'm hearing you right you're saying your survivalist impulse kind of says oh i should get with that person because they're the most fit and so it improves my stand it improves my standing it improves my chances of survival well it improves your off breeds chances <laughs> of survival right okay okay that makes sense that makes sense 
I'm not sure. This is quite philosophical. I, didn't, I wasn't expecting this. <laughs> <laughs> it is quite philosophical for 10.15 in the morning in, yeah. the, in the Hollywood Hills. And uh, for us uh, having met like seven minutes ago. <laughs> so, but that's fantastic. But I, I was reading up on you and you were born in 1970. You were 44 years old, I guess. That's right. I am 44. And you come from San Bernardino in California. I was born there, but my family actually didn't live there. We lived in a, another town over called Redlands, California. And then when I was... 17 going on 18 i moved to venice california and lived there for about three years and then i moved to new york for 20 years and then now have been back in la about two and a half years but i i was just talking about san bernardino last night because somebody asked me where i was born and It's it's an interesting place. It's uh, the Hell's Angels come from San Bernardino. Mm -hmm. San Bernardino also invented fast food, so I think it was the first uh, first McDonald's and first sort of burrito stand. And there's some other claim to fame. Oh, Route 66 runs through runs through San Bernardino. San Bernardino's in some Frank Zappa songs. So it's funny. It's it's a place that. Uh, has some notoriety for sure. But I think nowadays, I think one of the most more impoverished areas of California, second, I think in the, in the country, second to like D Detroit or something. And it's called the Inland Empire. Inland Empire. Yeah. Isn't that, a, it's a great name for that little collection of towns. Why? I have no, I mean, I guess it's inland, right? Yeah. And then they go, oh, and it's like a, it's a collection of, uh, sort of towns out there. I'm not sure. I think maybe Redlands, San Bernardino, Fontana, yeah, Yucaipa. It's a little collection of towns, but I have no idea why they named it the Inland Empire. If it's poor, I mean, it should be called like the inland ghetto or something. Well, that's not good for that's not going to be good for uh, real estate. And I mean, I don't mean to imply that that the everywhere is struggling, but I think San Bernardino in particular is kind of struggling. But I only gave up last night because someone was like, "Oh, where was your birthplace or where were you born?" And people say how no one is really from. They go, no one's from Southern California. No one's born here. But I, I meet a lot of people who are actually born here. Is San Bernardino, is it just inland here? Oh, it's inland here. Okay. So it's between, it's between like uh, Los Angeles and Palm Springs, I guess would be the way to put it. Okay. Aha, uh -huh. I didn't know that. So it's fairly close. Mm -hmm. And it's in the desert? Kind of, I guess. Not quite in the desert. Not as deserty as, say, Palm, the Palm Springs area. And the place that you actually grew up was called Red... Redlands, Redlands. Okay, and uh, what was it like growing up there? Oh, it was very nice. You know, Redlands is is kind of a suburban area, and it was just very nice, sort of suburban homes in an interesting place to grow up, I suppose. And then when I moved to Venice, California, as a young man, of course, Venice is had a lot going on and still has a lot going on, and. I made my way as a performer at Highway's Performance Space in Santa Monica in the sort of early 90s. And that was run by 
Tim Miller and Linda Fry Burnham at the time. And it was just a great place to go and make work because it was just a really interesting community of artists coming together. And for a, for a young man, you know, being 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, and being exposed to that environment, I, it was almost like going to art school. I met so many really fantastic artists that came through that space. And that's really how I started to develop my voice as a writer and my voice on stage. So that was my entry into Los Angeles. And then that led me to my work in New York. And so that's kind of how it all got started. When you say that you moved to Venice, was that with your family? Oh, no, I moved on my own, on okay. my own, yeah. Do you have a middle-class background? I would say so, yeah, like a sort of middle-class background. I have a one brother who's three years older than me. He's a very talented photographer. His name's Jeff Wallach, and mom and dad and the four of us. What did your parents do for a living, or what do they do? My father's an accountant, and my mother had a couple of different jobs. She was a florist and an interior designer, and I get my creativity, I think, from really from both of them in different ways. They're both very uh, creative people in their own right, and were pretty supportive of my of my work and my endeavors. And my brother is also in a creative field as well. So I think that was a great thing to have parents that were generally fairly supportive of, of those endeavors. Did you go to public schools or private schools? Or can you tell me about that? Sure. I went to public school and, uh, because I, for your listeners who don't know, I, I have a cerebral palsy And I walk with crutches. So for a part of my sort of younger, my, my younger sort of education, I was in special ed for a little bit. And yeah, it was great, though, because my parents were very vocal about having me be in a sort of mainstream, they call it, to be in with the other kids, even though I had a physical difference from them, because my parents felt very strongly that... Even though I had a physical difference, I didn't really have a mental difference from the other kids. So they wanted me to get the best education that I could have. And so it was in the 70s, I think it was a little bit controversial to have a child with some kind of difference or disability be mainstreamed into regular school. But I was really glad that they did that, that, no, they, course, that yeah. they spoke up on my behalf. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Were you accepted in in among your peers? I think for the most part. I mean, I, I, do, I don't really recall. I mean, everybody in childhood, no matter who you are or what your station in life, I think everybody in childhood has some traumatic childhood experiences. But in general, I feel like, yeah, I never really had a moment where I just felt completely alienated or not accepted, not necessarily because of my disability. I mean, like I said, I'm sure I can think back and find moments where things weren't going the way I wanted them to. But I I don't know. I've always been fairly outgoing and I've always, I have an, a great interest in people. And so I think that's always helped me along the way. Because like, like, well, like at the beginning of the interview, 
I was asking you a lot of questions. I have a tendency to do that. I like to find out about people and know about people. So I feel like that really helped me along the way. When you talk about like having crutches in a high, what do you call it? Ground school? No? Elementary school. Elementary school yeah. in, in the US in the 70s. My sort of mental picture is that you have like jocks coming from behind and like <laughs> kicking away your crutches so you fall off but did, that didn't happen. oh nothing that extraordinary no thankfully i don't really remember any experiences from elementary school or high school where anything like that happened yeah i mean the kids are mean to each other generally normally but i i can't recall any experience where i felt really ostracized I I just think it had a lot to do with um how I approached people or how um it's really sh- I can see as an adult how it's really shaped how I sort of approach people and how I approach life. I try to come to people in a fairly open way and meet them where they are. And so you don't have to agree with me necessarily or you don't have to accept me necessarily, but I'm very game to to meet you where you are and kind of let's figure out who each other is. And I think a lot of times we feel nervous about other people who are different from us, mostly because we haven't met them yet. And so I think when a person meets a person who's different from them, it's harder to objectify them, you know, because you're actually sitting in the room with them. How come you moved back here? Well, I moved back for work. I was doing a live storytelling tour with The Moth, The Moth Radio Hour, which is really great. For people who don't know it, they can check it out at themoth.org. They were doing a storytelling tour in conjunction with USA Network called Characters Unite, which is a really great cause to combat discrimination and bullying. So the idea was that if you brought people together from different backgrounds to tell stories, there's more that unites us than separates us in our stories. So it was a storytelling tour that went around the country and culminated in Los Angeles. So when we were done with the tour, USA Network approached me about conceptualizing a TV project for them, which I was in development with them for about a year. And so that initially, I was flying back and forth from New York to LA a lot. And when I would get on the plane to come to LA, I would feel really excited about coming. And and the weather was so nice. And I enjoyed it so much when I was here. And then when I would get back on the plane to go home to New York, I would feel a little tense and tight and... I thought, oh no, I'm I feel happy when I'm leave when I'm on my way out. And so that really signaled me that maybe it was time to for a change. I mean, I love New York so much. It is such a special city and so amazing and you can see so many great performers and musicians and amazing shows for 
and then go home, get on the subway and go home and you're home in 30 minutes. And not that there's not amazing culture in Los Angeles as well, but I feel like in Los Angeles, you have to go find it. Whereas in New York, it kind of finds you. It seeps in from every uh, corner, you know? But after a while, New York had just become a very intense place after 20 years. So I, I felt in my body like, oh, when I'm coming to L.A., I'm so excited about coming here. So I just tried to really listen to that and make the jump back home, really. And I I feel like there's, I feel like you are a little bit hardwired for the place that you come from, in a way. So it's good to be back. I'm I'm very happy to be back. But I love both places. How about the TV project? Oh, we we worked on that for a while and it didn't really come to fruition but i still have a very good relationship with the network and i want to bring something uh, new back into them so yeah. we'll see what happens back again to your the early days of your life sure. i mean what was your first like sort of creative outlet would you say like what did i what did i do like what did i make creatively When did you first sort of realize that this was something that you had to do? Oh, interesting. I think I've always been a storyteller in a way. Like, I think it's something that came quite naturally to me. And I think being a gay guy with a disability, I had something, I had a unique perspective. I had something to say. And especially as a young person, I feel... It's changed a little bit over the years, my my motivation or my drive to do it. I'm now doing it because I real I I feel creatively fulfilled by it and I actually have a skill set where I'm actually good at what I do as a writer and a storyteller. But as a young person, yeah, I was a young person living in kind of a suburban setting and yeah, just as a gay, disabled guy, like figuring out who I was. It helped me kind of, it gave me somewhere to put all of that stuff and to sort of process it, not in a way that's like therapy, but in a way that's, that's, you know, creative. So I, I had a voice that I felt like was unique and I needed, I needed an outlet. I needed somewhere to put it. And I began as a storyteller in the actual tradition of storytelling where you just get up and you tell a story and then you retell it and then you retell it and it builds as you as you're working on it and people would say oh you're such a great writer you're such a really great writer and it was it was funny because as a young person i didn't really write the work down in the beginning i just sort of kept it as a narrative in my head and it's almost like i worked backwards i learned through telling the story first and then writing it down later i then learned to become a writer But I didn't, as a young person, I never would call myself a writer because I felt I hadn't earned it because I actually wasn't sitting at the page writing it down. I was sort of doing it in this opposite kind of way. Now that I've been working, I guess, 20-some years, I now can do it both ways, where I take something to the page and write it and put it put it on stage. Or, But I still love that opportunity to get up in front of people And just tell a story very naturally, the way that you would tell a story at dinner over the day. I work, I actually teach storytelling and personal narrative to students, and I tell them a lot just to actually tell us the story. Like, 
don't worry so much about performing it because there's something really compelling about just being in the real story, telling me what actually happened to you. And so I try to work from, from that space a lot. But yeah, it's interesting. I really felt like I had to earn the badge of writer because I wasn't writing in the beginning. I was just telling. What was your first stage? Oh, my first stage... I mentioned Highway's performance space earlier yeah. in Santa Monica. It was, it still is a very great space. And at the time, I feel like it was sort of performance art or avant-garde in in nature. And it was really having a moment in the sort of early and mid-90s. And it was just such a great supportive space to develop work. And Tim Miller the gentleman who was running the space at the time and a, a great artist himself, a great writer and performer himself. He put me on stage or he, he saw something in me and put me on the program sort of, I, I wasn't really seeking it out, but he's like, Oh, I put you on this group show and gave me a deadline to sort of work towards. And That was really a great thing, because I don't know if I would have put myself on stage right then, but he saw something in me and and said, oh, I put you on the calendar and you're going to be performing. So it sort of gave me a deadline to work towards. And I think that was in, I think I was maybe like 16 or 17 years old. So it's pretty young. And that was my first, uh, my first sort of legitimate time on stage. Did you go to college and stuff? I've done some. I've been to a few different colleges and I've done some college, but I don't know. I started performing early on, like when I was in high school, and that began to take off and really have a life of its own. That and that somewhat distracted me a little bit from college. I mean, but I went to several. I went to a few different colleges and did some various coursework. That didn't really amount to a degree necessarily, but I went for a couple of years, like maybe two and a half years in various places. We have something called Allmänbildning, which is which translates to general education or general knowledge in a way, non-specialized stuff. So would you say that you, I mean, since you didn't go to school that much, are there voids in your knowledge i mean do, do you know how to count do you know how to spell spell of course but do you know the order of the planets stuff like that i get what you're saying i feel fairly competent in most areas i'm not sure if you quiz me on on all of that i mean i i certainly can count i certainly can spell yeah, yeah. uh I don't know. I guess like every, I think even if you did go through your four years or even, you know, earning your advanced degree, I think people, I think just it's human nature that everybody has a little bit of a, a weak point. Who was the, who was America's fourth president? Oh my God, you are going to quiz me. <laughs> at, at so early in the morning. I don't know the answer to I that. I don't know right off. I have to tell you. I have to be honest. Yeah. I have to say, it's funny. I have a father who's an accountant, and I'm not particularly strong in math, and neither is my brother. And so I feel like the family business will end with him. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I don't yeah. think anyone's going to 
take it over. Not that we would, not that we wouldn't be honored and that we wouldn't love to. I just think we don't, neither one of us really have the facility for but, that. But is he like, is he a successful accountant? Oh, very extraordinarily successful. Yeah. Okay. So it would be, maybe someone will carry on that legacy who's not in the family. Okay. So you, you sort of, you weren't poor growing up at all. You had money. I would say we were, our family was, you know, middle class. Yeah, I'd say we were middle class. Did you have a a pool? In one of the places we lived, yeah, we had a pool in the backyard. Did you have a fancy car? Me, personally, I didn't have a fancy okay. car, but my father, yeah, my father had a nice car. Do you drive? I do drive. I'm not currently driving in LA because I've... I've been in New York for 20 years, and I I think the last time I was behind the wheel was in 1992, so it's been a while. And yeah. so I arrived today, as you saw, I arrived today in an Uber, but I think Uber's pretty great. Yeah. But I'm slowly relearning how to drive. I just don't trust myself quite yet behind the wheel. But do you need a special car, or can you drive any car? Technically, I should have a special car, and if I were to drive again, I would get hand controls in a car. But in a pinch, I could drive a car with pedals. Okay. But I think the DMV would rather that I did not do that. <laughs> All right. Do you say handicap that you have? Is that a word that you use? Yeah, or I'm not sure what the what the current PC thing is but i say disability or handicap doesn't really okay. offend me really i mean i know people want to say other words sometimes but i'm not for me it's an interesting discussion for me both in terms of how people refer to gay people or disabled people and i know people are very particular about language and being a person who works with language i understand that but i think it's about intention like so if you if you say handicap as you did just now i can tell sitting across from you and looking in your face and feeling your energy you mean it in a in a you're fine in the way that you're presenting it thank you and it's not my native tongue i must say right also. exactly yeah. but i'm just saying i know that these days people get very pc and very sensitive about words and the words that are used to talk about other people which i can appreciate but i also feel like it's really about the intentionality of the person who you're talking to so i don't really mind handicap necessarily but i don't know if it's uh i don't even know what the current super pc word is i say disability and i'm not even sure that that's Okay, really yeah. the right one. But I think I get to say what I want about me. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, my question was about your disability. Mm -hmm. Could you explain what, what kind of... I mean, you obviously work, uh, walk with crutches, but what's the problem, sort of? Uh, oh, sure. I, by the way, I'm not an expert, so someone can maybe uh, explain it better than me, but my understanding is that cerebral palsy, at least my particular condition was caused during because of a lack of oxygen uh, during or before the birth process and so it is a form i guess of some kind of uh brain damage during birth but the good thing the good news is, is that it's not a degenerative condition so it's more like a 
a static and stable condition. And there are various, on the scale of what cerebral palsy can be, there are various severities as to how people are affected in their speech and their motor skills. And so it can really run the the gamut. But I think that people... Yeah, when people, uh, people, because I have a physical visible difference on the street, people approach me, strangers approach me all the time. And I think they want to know, like, is it degenerative? Like, am I, you know, is it causing me pain? I've had people. Does it? Not, well, this is the thing. I've only been me, so I only know myself. And so for me, I'm not in in any kind of consistent pain, I would say. But I don't know. I'm not. I don't live in another body, so but I'm do not you, sure. Do you sort of sense your legs? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so, for sure. But it's just that they don't move as. Yeah. As, yeah. The muscles aren't getting the signals that they should to move in the way that they should. Okay. As I said, someone could probably technically explain yeah. it a lot better, but that that's how I understand it. But it's interesting it's interesting walking around in the world with a physical difference because yeah, people come up to me all the time and they're very curious, which I actually don't as a writer and performer, I don't mind. I find it very interesting. It gives me a lot of material to work work with. I sort of can't relate to having something that people would be so interested in on a regular mm-hmm. basis and and you sort of can't turn it off either. Right. Yeah. Right. I understand what you mean. Sure. Well, it's like, you- it's like being a celebrity. You look exactly like uh, Jim Carrey. I would assume that if <laughs> if you were sitting in the back seat of a car, uh-huh. people would I'm sure that has happened to you that they think you are Jim Carrey. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I've heard a lot of different comparisons as to who I might look like, but I have not heard Jim Carrey before. Haven't you? People, people, people have told me I look a little bit like uh, Steve O. You know, Steve O yeah. from Jackass. Yeah. Or people have said, "Oh, you look a little like Matthew Broderick." But pe- I think people are just naming white guys with brown eyes and brown hair, right? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, that's um, what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> but when you said that there's nothing remarkable about you, you're a, you're a tall, you're a very tall guy, I would yeah. say. And I'm not even sure where I'm trying to go with this, <laughs> but I'm I'm trying to figure out how you're... I mean, does it ever bother you that you have to sort of talk about your your disabilities then? What's interesting, you know, being a performer on stage, if I got up and I never addressed it, that would be strange. But I've been working so many years now and I am I do have a career where in certain circles, you know, my I am people are somewhat aware of my work in certain circles, so it it would be really boring for those people if I was only talking about reflecting on my disability but i also understand that if i go into a comedy club and people there have never seen me before it's something i do have to address in in the show it would be strange if i didn't but i i certainly don't go on for an entire hour only doing material about that but i remember i was in a, a comedy club in new york i think gotham comedy club and a guy was really drunk and he came up to me afterwards and he said oh you didn't do your you didn't do your act the right way 
the black girl talked about being black and the fat girl talked about being fat. You were supposed to talk about your thing more. You didn't talk about, you barely talked about your, what's going on with you. And it disturbed him because it didn't really fit that comedy idea of like you're saying about what is that unique thing that you can kind of exploit and talk about. But I think as a person with a disability, Once I've addressed it, there are certainly more things to talk about. I certainly have more observations and more things that I can bring to the floor. But in that very traditional comedy setting, with a few drinks in him, he was upset that I didn't, that my whole thing wasn't about me having a disability. Like the fat girl talking about being fat. I guess that's a good thing that you can choose not to. Right. And I I guess in a way that is the place, like you say, I can't turn it off. Like I can't walk down the street and pass as they say, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. So I guess, yeah. in the performance environment and the stage environment, I am in control uh, to a degree and I can, as long as I have the mic, I'm going to talk about this. Uh, have you tried writing a segue? A, I, you know what I thought you just meant? I know what you mean now. I thought you I thought you said, have you ever tried writing a segue, <laughs> yeah. like a transition? Yeah. Have I tried writing a transition? <laughs> I was like, of course. But you mean, have I ever ridden a segue? Yes. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I've written I've written many segues. I can understand that. Yeah. And I've I don't, I've never ridden a Segway. I are are they illegal now or no? I don't think so. But didn't the is this a is this an urban legend? Did the creator of the Segway die on a Segway? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be fantastic. It's like there, It would be fantastic. There, there was this uh, uh really famous I don't know if he was big here as well, but a guy called Montignac. Uh, He's enormous here. No, I don't know who that is. No, but he was uh, sort of a, a you know a diet doctor, oh. and his thing was that um, he was the first one to cut out carbs, really. But he, he was sort of extreme, and he died from obesity. So that didn't really work well, out. Well, what was he doing? If he cut out carbs. What was he doing instead of carb? What was the problem? By the way, I I host a food related show. I, I want to talk to you about and that. And so I'm fascinated with everybody's food stuff. So he must have gotten obese some other way. Was he was he doing a lot of butter and meat and that kind of thing? Pro high protein. I would say so. Interesting. Well, and it, but it's still going on. There's still a website. You can still do it. Yes, yes. People don't care. They're like, so the creator died. Not a problem. No. The big thing now in Sweden, anyway, is gluten. To not eat gluten. Well, that's uh, here in LA. That's every, everybody's gluten intolerant. Yeah. So I thought you were going to say the big thing in Sweden is gluten. We can't. We can't get enough. <laughs> yeah we love it and we love it in sweden it's all gluten all the time you said earlier that you've sort of developed uh, so that you can sort of start with the writing hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Or start by telling something on stage, but could you tell me something about the... Um, let's uh, just be clear that your your craft is sort of... Could you say that it's anecdotal comedy? I would say, yeah, it's anecdotal comedy and story storytelling, story-based yeah. comedy, observational to some degree, and personal experience. Personal experience and personal narrative as performance, like as a performance style. So I tell people... When I'm on stage talking to them, it's a, it's very much in like in a direct a direct address kind of way, and I actually try to keep it pretty true, as true as I remember, or as true as I can recall, because I think that's that's always a. Uh, there's been a lot of talk lately about performers who get up and do this kind of performing, or even the writers who do this sort of writing about what is true. There was that big controversy, the guy who was chosen for Oprah's book club. Yeah, um, James Fry. Yeah. I interviewed him. Oh, nice. Yeah, just, and it came out like two months ago on this very show. I'm going li- to listen to it. He's fantastic. I love A him. million little pieces, right? I and love that. So it was this whole idea of like what it, what is true and what what is not true. And also there's a storyteller, Mike Daisy, who did a piece about Apple and how Apple creates their products. And I believe was on with Ira Glass and I don't really know the whole story. I, I didn't really know the whole story, but I think was kind of called out on NPR for some of the content not being, uh, necessarily factual. So it's interesting. I mean, when I'm on stage, I definitely, I'm not a journalist and the kind of storytelling I'm not, I'm doing is not journalistic. And really it's about my personal life. It's not about a corporation or I'm not taking anybody to task in the stories that I'm telling. So it's my, it's my memory of, of, of what happened. It's my take on what happened. And I in no way claim that that is the absolute truth, but it's as, it's as true as I can remember it. And so I think those guys maybe got in trouble a little bit because, well, I don't know their story really, but me, that they were a little bit insistent on it being absolutely true or absolutely journalistic. Mm. So yeah, I don't, I don't claim to be doing that kind of work. I'm just telling it in a per, in a, in a personal account sort of way. But I love, but I love that idea, that concept of like what is true and what whose version of the truth is the most true. 
It's an interesting concept. Of course. And I, and I think also, without going too deep into that, I mean, I think that the, the problem for James Fry, uh, at least, was that he wasn't, he didn't deny it at some point. And that was the problem that it would uh. be, I mean... Never mind. I, I'm I'm curious um, about your comedy. I mean, have you sort of tried to do more? What's the deal with airplane food <laughs> type of comedy? I don't know if I have any material that's very. I yeah, I don't really do that style. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure there must be some a joke or two in there about. Um, I don't know. I I I do a bit about coming to LA and how a doctor. Uh, I went in for a sprained ankle, and then a, on the way out, the doctor said, "Oh, are you going to do anything about your about your weight problem?" And I'm I was the same weight then as I am now, and fit. Well, obviously, thank you. And uh, <laughs> you know, I'm a 44 year old guy of a little bit of a belly or whatever, but I never had imagined. I'm like, oh my god, no one ever said I was fat before in New York. I was in New York for 20 years, but it, it was funny. It was like a welcome, welcome to LA, and welcome to your eating disorder. So I got really concerned about. Because even though I knew the doctor was crazy, I was like, but this woman's a doctor. Why Why would she be saying that? So she got in my head a little bit, and I decided to join a gym. So I do some material about the gym and sort of life at the gym. Uh, I suppose it's maybe that that is maybe as close as I get to what's the deal with such and such. But I, I'm not really that kind of... Um, I feel like peop I feel like comedians who build that sort of material are really good joke technicians. Like they really they can write a uh setup and a punchline in a very technical, very solid way that pays off fairly consistently. And I'm much more of a storyteller. There's there's room for like not every line has to land in an absolutely hilarious way all the time. It can be a story that builds to builds to something that's funny or that's a release. So I really admire the comedians that that are really good technicians and can write that sort of setup and punch super consistently. But I mean, I, like I say, I guess there's some stuff I do about the gym that approaches that a little bit, mm -hmm. but only because the gym is such a bizarre, I mean, the, like we were talking about before the food culture and the gym culture and the, that aspect of LA is really funny and really entertaining to me. And that's, that's partially why, why I was inspired to create and host a food show at the standard Hollywood It's called Eat Your Word, Stories About Food. And so it's it's sort of like This American Life or The Moth meets food. And so there's a storytelling element and a food element in every show. And I and LA is a fun place to do it because we're pretty obsessed about food here. We yeah. we love talking about it. We love talking about what we can eat, what we can't eat. So it's a but it's funny because people in LA don't actually tend to eat a lot, but we talk about it a lot. So I thought, well, it'd be really fun to make a food show, stories about food. Stand-up in Sweden is fairly new. It's a fairly new art form there. 
But storytelling, I mean, does that have, has it always been a scene here? If you don't sort of mix it up with pure stand-up comedy. Interesting. Well, I would say that storytelling, I mean, it's the oldest thing that we've been doing it, I feel like, since the beginning of time. It's like it's a, it's it's ingrained in our human nature. But I really do feel like it's the oldest thing we do. It's like we sit around the fire, we sit around the dinner table, and we tell each other, you will never believe what happened today. And there are elements of comedy and and elements of tragedy and everything in between. And so that's, that's what's great about it as a, as opposed to comedy, like I was saying before, where every single line has to land in this very funny way. I, I love storytelling because there's breath and there's room for like poignancy and anger and other, other emotions and not, but listen, I think even that line in comedy has become really blurred in a really nice way, you know, when alternative well, or what they were calling alternative comedy was sort of happening in the 80s and stuff. I were, you, were you a part of that? To a degree, sure. I mean, not that early on. I was still I was still fairly young person, but to a degree. And I think in a way that that's developed with performers like Louis C.K., of course, who's brilliant and... Uh, not always not it's not always about being totally funny all the time sometimes it's very poignant sometimes it's you know deep social commentary but it's fantastic uh sandra bernhardt is another one i feel who really utilizes that storytelling element in her comedy kathy griffin actually is up there telling stories and so i feel like it's not such a separate discipline or expression, but I get what you're saying. It's not necessarily straight ahead stand-up comedy either. And I guess your question was, was there, has there always been a scene? I feel like now, if you're going to speak about it in that way, strictly storytelling has really hit a chord with people. And there are many, many great storytelling shows in both New York and Los Angeles and so many great podcasts. There's a podcast called risk Kevin Allison from the state, the comedy troupe that was on MTV uh, hosts that podcast and you can dial it up on iTunes. I've been on there before and there's many other fantastic performers on there as well. The, The moth is a great one. There are three women actually who host a fantastic show here in Los Angeles called Radio Picture Show. And it's at the Virgil. And it's hosted by uh, Lauren Cook, Shauna McGarry, and Marion Hodges, who's a DJ from KCRW. And the concept of the show is it's a story inspired by a photograph or a song. So it produces a lot of nice work, usually memory pieces, because I feel like when people are looking at photographs and looking at or listening to music, you get some poignant kind of interesting, interesting work. And yeah, so there were a lot of, I feel like storytelling is definitely having a cultural moment for sure. A renaissance. Sure. That's nice to hear. And also, I mean, This American Life, as you mentioned, it's such a fantastic show as well. Oh, of I mean, course. And they've been going on for ages now, 15 Forever, years or so. Yeah. yeah. You are very open about your uh, sexual orientation. 
When did you know? Gosh, I feel like it's something I always kind of knew about myself. And it didn't feel... Well, I it's going to sound kind of corny, but I'm just going to tell you. I always felt that I was a little bit different from other people. And I wasn't sure what it was. And I was like, oh, well, I'm, I have a disability. And so maybe that's why I feel so different. And then... I came to terms with that to some degree. And then when I got into my teenage years, I was like, oh, well, I'm gay. And maybe that's why I feel so different. And then I came out to those around me, even though I knew myself, I think since childhood, and I I still felt different. I still felt sort of this kind of otherness, for lack of a better way of putting it. And now I feel like, oh, it's because I'm in because I'm a creative type or because I'm an artist, I have a, I have sort of a, a different point of view in the world. And not, not to say that any of those three things makes me particularly special. I'm venturing a guess that maybe everybody has that weird feeling of feeling outside. I'm not, I'm not sure. I think often we have this idea of, oh, like if you're a straight white guy in America, things are fine. I would venture a guess, though, that even those even those guys feel sort of on the outside of something. I I just think it's like a human nature sort of a thing to you come here and you're here and maybe you don't quite feel like you belong. And I think this idea that there's a group of people who are actually all set and the world's working in their favor and things are fine for them, I think... If you ask them, even they would feel some sense of not quite fitting. I think that's a human nature kind of a thing. But I think it's very easy for other people to be like, oh, well, if you're, if you're that guy, the culture is set up for you and things are working in your favor. And that's no small thing. I mean, that is, that is a big deal. However, I think just on a human nature level, like even that guy probably feels a little bit of, that he's finding his way. I guess, so in regard to my sexuality, I think it's something that I always knew. And I remember one of the first people I think that I told was probably my neighbor, Lisa Randall, who lived next door. And her mother had a Playgirl magazine in the closet or something. And I remember as kids, we kind of snuck in like sort of young teens or maybe preteens. And we looked at it. We looked at sort of these naked men that were in this magazine. And, and I told my friend Lisa that I, that I liked it. And she was like, Oh, that's fine. And then we just went on watching TV and it was really normal. And she was very accepting and, it didn't weird her out or, and it felt okay to tell her. Like I felt sort of safe telling her and, and I'm lucky in a way because there's nobody in my life that really reacted in a terrible way. I mean, people were, were and continue to be fairly accepting. It took my, I mean, as all parents, I assume have some vision for, straight or gay, I think all parents have a vision for their children and who their children are going to turn out to be and what kind of life their children are going to live. So I remember when I told my mom, she was crying, but she said, I'm not crying because of who you are. 
I'm crying because I'm afraid of what you'll have to face in in your life. So her her crying came more out of concern that I was a person who was maybe quote unquote different in the world or going to have to face you know whatever she would imagine I was going to have to face. But in, in a way, I feel like having a disability strangely made it easier for me to process because I'm like, oh well, I'm already. I'm already di- I'm already kind of a different guy in the world and I have an awareness of that. Like I have an awareness. Yeah, when I look out at people, I see how people are looking back in. I'm acutely aware of that from a young age. So in a way it set me up. I already felt different. But in a in a really fantastic way as a writer in term in regard to my disability, people often and very unashamedly would hold their gaze on me long. They would look, they would really look like people really look and really stare. And instead of feeling victimized by that stare, it gave me permission to really stare back. And so when I look at people, I really look at people. I really hold my gaze on them and not in a confrontational way, but it's sort of, as a child, it's what I was taught. Everyone would really, really deeply look. So I thought, oh, that's what people do. So I would really deeply, deeply look back. And in retrospect, I feel incredibly lucky because it made me a great observer of human beings. And I get permission to really look because you're looking. If you're going to really look at me, I'm going to really look at you. And so that was a positive thing from from that experience. Instead of feeling like, oh, I wish, I wish everyone would stop looking, or I feel so victimized by that stare. Uh, it was an empowering thing. It's a nice thing when people really hold their gaze. I can really hold my gaze in return to them. And so, again, yeah, in regard to sexuality, it's just an interesting thing. I already felt that kind of otherness feeling. But I don't know. I, I mean, I don't mean to you know, <laughs> I know we decide with the straight white guy and go, Oh, but he, he feels that otherness too. But I do think that that's important to acknowledge. Cause I think it's so easy for people to say, well, we're in this group and we're more oppressed than that group over there. And that group's got it made. And although, although there's certain sort of privileges that are granted and, because of who you are or whatever your station is in life, I still think it's important to understand that the person as you that you see as the opposition to you or your cause or whoever you are, they're going through it too to some degree. I don't know. Does that does that make sense? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. There's been like a debate in Sweden because immigration to us is also it's not new. New, of course. We went to the U.S. like 100 years ago. One million of us came, I think. So, mm-hmm. But there has been a discussion about separatism, that people need to have like their own space to discuss the pros and cons of being a minority and, mm-hmm. and being able to do that without the majority to like, yes, you're totally right. <laughs> I'm not sure what I'm getting no, at. No, 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 I get you. I mean, I I see both things. I mean, I do think it's important to have 
for groups to have their own space and their own community to get together and support each other. But I hate when that becomes exclusionary and separatist to other, to, to other fellow human beings. I mean, I, I understand the idea. Well, I live in West Hollywood, right? And so I live near Santa Monica Boulevard where there's a string of gay bars and there's some controversy about I was in a taxi the other day and the guy was like oh I hate these bars here because when I walk down the boulevard at night with my kid I don't want my kid exposed to what's happening in these bars and I would say straight or gay maybe your kid doesn't need to be like the whole world is not for you to take your kid to. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like there should be some places where gay folks can gather. And even, even if the establishment is somewhat adult in nature, I think that's fine. The streets are not necessarily catering to you. So you can walk your kid down every single road but, in, uh, in the city and you know also I mean? I mean what at what time does he walk that with his <laughs> exactly, kid exactly. because right. i mean if it's in the daytime perhaps it's good for the child to see that people can look well exactly exactly no no i think it's a positive thing but when when he was complaining i i mean it's this is the thing every other street Every other street, every other street you go down is your street. Every other street is for you. Like, it's okay that this one street maybe doesn't cater absolutely to you. Yeah. And, and I agree. Bring your, bring your kid. Bring your kid. Expose your kids to a different idea and a different culture. But not every bar is for you. Some bars are not for you. And I mean, or I've, I've had friends complain Like a, a straight guy friend of mine, I went in a lesbian bar the other day and I was asked to leave. And I don't know how technically how I feel about that. I mean, I feel like everyone should be welcomed everywhere. But I also understand the lesbians kind of going, hey, listen, every other bar is your, you can go to any of them. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? So maybe, maybe let, these ladies even as a gay guy you know i don't need to walk into every lesbian bar just because i can like maybe let the lesbian ladies have their own place to hang out that's reasonable but it's a sticky situation because you you don't want to get into a you don't want to get into a thing where it's exclusionary of other people but i also understand that idea of gathering together and having your own space and having your own community and that being empowering, it just becomes a little sticky when it becomes exclusionary with any group, with any group who becomes really separatist. And well, because you don't want then, you know, the people at the pro golf clubs to say, Oh, well, what about a place where only white people can be, you know, mm. then you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> but like, you know what I mean? So, but I do appreciate the fact that people want to gather and feel supported in their own communities. By the way, I saw a piece that you did. I saw it on YouTube where you talked about um, that someone had 
asked you if you were gay because you right. were disabled. Right. That was such a fantastic bit. Oh, and, thank you so and, much. And, I, and I, by the way, I love your material because what you do in your comedy that perhaps more like, let's say, for instance, uh, Seinfeld, when he works with his, by the way, perhaps a little bit out of date setups, women are uh, <laughs> like this and men are like this. But anyway, but it's so formative that here's the setup you don't laugh at that and here's the punch that's where you laugh and so but your material is sort of it puts a smile on my face all through almost oh well thank you and that's more important because i feel also love oh well thanks thanks i appreciate it i mean that's my intention really i often think Well, there's a really great show in town called Uncabaret that's been going on for a really long time in downtown LA. And it's hosted by Beth Lapidus, who is a really fantastic host and and performer in her own right. And she was on my show recently at the Standard Hollywood and said something really beautiful. She said that instead of... Um, thinking about performing instead of thinking about getting laughs you should think about giving giving them and i thought that was such a lovely way to put it you know i try in my own work yeah i try to yeah i try to meet the audience where they are and have a conversation and even though it's a one-sided i'm i'm the one talking it really is tapping into their energy and kind of generosity is definitely an ingredient that's in the mix, you know, you know what I mean? And so people often after shows will come up to me and say, God, you know, Greg, you have this thing where it feels like you were talking directly to us. And I go, well, that's because I was talking directly to you. I mean, you know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Because yeah. we are in this room, we are here in this room, we are having this experience. And so even though it's a piece that maybe I've told before, I've done before, I always try to evoke that, like, you, this is happening this time only. Even if it's like, oh, it's this thing I've done a million times. You really are coming to it new every time. Every day in your life, every day in your life, it's new. Even if it seems like Groundhog Day and you're making the coffee that you made yesterday and you're returning the email just like you did yesterday. But it's important to remember that to try to be present and that you are having a new experience. It's never the same old, even though it can really feel like that, it's never the same old thing. So when, when I come to the stage and, or to the mic, yeah, I always try to really remember that. And somebody was asking me the other day about mistakes and I'm like, Oh, I actually love mistakes. because those are the most interesting moments when something goes a little bit wrong or like you didn't expect It's it's about really kind of embracing what's happening in the room. Honoring what's happening in the room is a big thing for me. Because if I it'd be different if I was doing a play that has to look this way every night, you know, it has to go this way. But that's not what I'm doing. I'm actually a guy standing in a room. I'm trying to I'm trying to connect with the audience and not just perform and keep them at a distance in a certain kind of way. So I like that if you feel love, like mission accomplished, you yeah. know? Yeah, thank you. Congratulations thank on that. Thank you. What would you need to be professionally totally satisfied? 
people have a lot of big dreams in Los Angeles about being super famous or reaching some huge goal or the cash and prizes aspect of like a house and a boat and a this and a women and whatever, which is all great. There's nothing wrong with that sort of winning the game show idea of success. But really, I want to be successful enough and known enough to support the creative work that I want to do. That would be really satisfying. And not necessarily have to answer to a cor- to a huge corporate entity. I wouldn't mind working, and I have not minded in the past working for in those situations. But my hope would be that if I was working for a big entity like that, that their vision would be in line enough with mine that I would feel good about it. But yeah, to be known enough and recognized enough for my work that I continuously get good opportunities that feel really satisfying. And I love to travel. I mean, I've traveled a lot around the world with my work and taken it to different places like Tel Aviv and Poland and Russia. And those have been, while while not the most high profile or glamorous experiences, some of the most rewarding experiences of my things I will never forget. I mean, going through Poland was such an amazing experience and to get to connect with the, the people in that culture was so heartening. It made me feel, it made me feel so good. And the thing that was really striking about Poland, especially is the whole like moms and dads and kids and everyone from the culture came out to check out what we were doing. I was on a tour with other, you know, international artists that have been brought together. And I feel like it's not, we don't really have that relationship to the arts in America as much. I think in America, the arts is seen more as entertainment or something extra, like it's extra stuff. It's not really a necessity. And it felt like at least in that tour through Poland, like people, people culturally really felt pulled towards it. And and there was a necessity involved. Like people wanted to come out and actually see what was being made and created. And there was a different kind of um, respect for the work and what was actually happening. Whereas here, I feel like, there's a different uh, thing to it. Mm. It's like it's extra, it's entertaining. And so it's not necessarily valued all the time. So I guess in a sort of long-winded way, yeah, to be recognized enough and to have the work valued in a way that feels really satisfying. I wish I had a more, I think about this often because you're not the first one to ask, and I wish I had a more flashy answer. You know what I mean? Like yeah, well, It was perfectly fine. Well, you know how people say, oh, you know, fur coats and cars and bitches and hoes, or I don't know. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't really have that. I, yeah, I would just like it to be supported and feel good. And and if I'm working for, you know, a big entity to, to feel like there's somebody that I want to lend my support to, yeah. that it's a mutual thing. Television. Yeah, of course. I would love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever um, worry about money? <laughs> sure. There have been, I mean, any person pursuing a creative endeavor, and especially in New York, New York is such a hard city to live in. And 
you, I mean, people know who lived there and artists know who lived there. You can have every good intention, but you're not going to go out outside without spending at least 20 bucks, something on some somewhere. So in New York, I always felt a little clenched about money because it's such a money city and there are so many people who not are, who are not only doing better than you are, but they're doing way better than you are. There's such a gap between like the haves and have-nots in New York City, and I was somewhere kind of in the middle of that. But it the spectrum is very striking. The people in New York City who are just in absolutely abject poverty and then the other end of the scale with people just with huge crazy amazing wealth so i feel like i felt that more in new york than anywhere else just because it's so in your face in a funny kind of a way there but also i think as an artist pursuing a in a creative field and having done it for more than 20 years you just resign yourself to some some days are going to be great and some days are not. And it takes a certain amount of trust that you're going to get through. You've made it. I've often said to myself, well, you've made it this far somehow and you'll continue to do so. And so I worry, I think everybody worries about money to a degree, no matter what they're doing, but it's also kind of letting go and knowing that this month looks this way. Next month will be that way. It's, it's, I don't think people last long in a creative field if they can't somehow get a little bit comfortable with the rain or shine idea of finances. What's your biggest fear? You know, I'm going to be, because this has been such a nice conversation and kind of deep in a nice way. I'm just going to be, I'm just going to honestly say the first thing that comes to my mind. My biggest fear is that I did it to myself. Like whatever my, whatever my... Whatever my toil or my torture is in life, my biggest fear is that I did it to myself. You know what I mean? That I that I worried over that I'll get to the end of the road and it'll be like, you know what the It's like that radio I don't even know if that's what that song means. It's like that Radiohead song, you did it to yourself and that's what really hurts. You know that lyric, you did it you did it to yourself and that's what really hurts. I feel like that. I feel like all my sort of toil and torture and what I put myself through is that it was that I'll find that I'll figure out it was mostly by my own hand. Like I really didn't have to worry. Like what were you worried what were you worried about? Cuz I think creative people often think in that way or have that kind of mind where, and I especially think comics and comedians, I think that's why comedians often off stage are not the funniest people you'll meet. They're often kind of deep thinkers or even dark thinkers at some points. And so I think that when the creative mind is off running in in that direction, it's just the creative mind like spinning in a negative direction. It's yeah. like so whenever I'm having that kind those kind of dark thoughts or in a dark space, I try to tell myself, "Oh, Greg, it's just your creative mind working in a in a in a shadow direction in a negative way." And so I guess my greatest fear is yeah, I'll get to the end of it all. 
and find that most of what I was tortured about in my life was I was by my own hand. Mm. Like I didn't need to think about it really. I didn't need to worry about it. Do you feel that you you use a lot of energy? I mean, about that stuff, about worry. <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, I, I try not to, but yeah, I think like I think yeah, as a creative person, in some sense, it's productive and even entertaining at times to spin every possibility to its conclusion because that's what a writer is kind of busy doing in their head, right? It's like taking every possibility and spinning it out to its final destination and that's great and energizing and really informs a writer's work but at the same time i think when you're just trying to hang out and and live your life that what we've trained our minds so well to do can take you to a it's a double-edged sword do you know what i mean so it can take you to kind of a negative space or to, at least i'll speak for myself it can take me to kind of an, a negative space to sort of spin every possible yarn to its conclusion and so i think that's my biggest fear like like greg the thing that fucks you up the most in your life and tripped you up the most it was by your own hand so i don't really fear i don't know i don't Like people say, oh, death, or people have those big answers like death, or I feel like it's kind of a relief. The good news about the human condition is that we're at all, the story ends the same for everyone. And I think that's a relief. Like in a way, it's kind of a relief. We're all going to go to the same place. And that's an inevitability. It doesn't, no one's story ends a different way. And so I'm not really worried. I'm not really worried about that. But Yeah, I worry I worry that the darkness I put myself through is by my own hand. You were talking about this a little bit earlier, but do you have goals? I mean, personally, not professionally, but I mean, I guess the question is I don't know if uh, about your social status if you're in a relationship or so, but would you like to be a parent someday and so forth? Oh, interesting. Maybe that's too personal. No, it's fine. I like kids a whole lot, and kids get along with me really well. But I also like that they belong to somebody else. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know. My friend Jen Kirkman, who's a really fantastic comedian who I've known for years from New York, who's on uh, or who was on Chelsea lately, she wrote a really fantastic book about her life without kids being a woman without kids and how the people have the expectation. Like if you're a woman and you choose not to have kids, you're somehow not fulfilling your destiny as a woman. But the book is called, I can barely take care of myself. And I feel that way to some degree. Like I've chosen a road and a, and a path in life that I feel I'm not anti kids by any means, but I just don't know how a kid would fit in here. And it would feel unfair. I mean, it's sort of like I, I I, wouldn't really be living the life I'm living now if I suddenly had a kid because I would have to do, it would have to be different. It would, it would have to be about them and which is fine, but it's just probably not what I'm up to at the moment. And relationship wise too. I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying being single and I I'd like a relationship, but I want that person to have their own house. <laughs> okay. I, I yeah. want that I want that guy to live at his own place. You know. Yeah. 
Maybe next time I when I come over I'm I'm going to try to bring my son, you know. Oh nice. Yeah? And maybe you can hang out. Maybe you can babysit. Oh, I I love to babysit. <laughs> it's my favorite. I love kids. I actually really love kids. I just yeah. don't know if it's in the cards for me. Okay, cool. You have a it seems to be really fascinating and it's bugging me out that I missed it this time but but the the food uh, show on the standard Right, it's yeah. called Eat Your Words. Eat Your Words. Sorry. Stories, stories about food, yeah. and it happens the first Thursday of every month at the Standard Hollywood. It's free. It's open to the public. But you should RSVP. You should RSVP. And there's an email address on the internet. Right. Yeah. Would you like to recommend anything? Something? Anything? Well, aside from being self-promotional, which th- this has been all about that, so I won't do that. But people can check me. People can check me out. People can go to gregwallach.com and follow me on Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff. By the way, I saw a fantastic poster. You were you just did a gig with James Adomian and uh, some other people. Oh yeah, that was a little while back. There is a great show at the Virgil which is a really fantastic space here in Los Angeles that hosts a lot of comedy, I think, and just really interesting shows. The Virgil has a lot of great stuff going on, but there's a show hosted by Kristen Schaal and Kurt Braunholer called Hot Tub. And they used to do Hot Tub in Brooklyn in New York. And so they've moved out here now and they're, they're hosting the show I hear because they're both of their careers have brought them to LA. And so it feels like a little bit of home in a way to go to the Virgil and see hot tub. It feels a little bit like being back in Brooklyn, but yeah. Um, could that be your recommendation? Sure. People should go see, uh, people should go check out hot tub if they're in, LA on a Monday night. It's every Monday night at the Virgil. And also Kurt Braunholer and Kristen Shaw, the hosts, they have a lot of content online and on TV. Check them out too. They're two of my favorites. The reason the reason I really love them, whenever I go and see Hot Tub or whenever I see individual projects they're working on, they remind me to have fun. They always they always seem like they're having such fun and they're such kind good spirited good hearted people that it really brings me to this to this lovely place of like oh yeah this is this is fun you know they're they're invoking that and i i love it because not only are they really funny comedians they're actually good hearted people with something intelligent to say with their comedy what they're doing Perfect. so yeah i highly recommend them i love them very much my last question sure Who do you think I should interview on Barbet International? Well, you know, part of why I love hosting a show myself, the show at The Standard, is not only do we have uh, storytellers and comedians, we also have a chef or a bartender or a foodie or someone from the local sort of L.A. food culture. And that's been the most, one of the more rewarding parts of the show is the food people that come on and talk about their work and what they do. It's different. It's different than the storytellers and different than the comedians. And I'm always so moved by their passion for their work. So for me recently, I had this guy, Michael Fay, who's the founder of 
this company called Kombucha Dog, and he they brew kombucha. Do you know kombucha? The it's like a fermented. Um, oh yeah, yeah. You'll have yeah. to have some. Yeah, your I, ear. I try that. But the the thing is that I'm a teetotal, and it has a tiny bit a of tiny alcohol. Tiny bit yeah. of alcohol. So I, I'm not crazy about You're it. You're not but, crazy no, about it. it. I know what it is. But he started this company called Kombucha Dog, and they. Brew kombucha in downtown LA, and then on the label, there's a dog. They do a short run, and they produce their own labels, and there's a dog that's up for adoption on each label. So while you're drinking your kombucha and you read the label, he wanted to put something good and meaningful on the label, so you can adopt this dog, and not only are you saving that dog from the foster care that it's in. But then when you adopt that dog, the foster care adopts another dog from the kill shelter. So by adopting one dog, you're saving two. And I was just really fascinated by that concept. And not only is he making a good product that people enjoy and people love, but there's actually some integrity in having this other goal with the product as well which is, you know, animal rescue. And so I don't know if I'm recommending him specifically, but what I really love about being a host myself is that you get to meet interesting people and interview interesting people. So I've always really liked talking to the, the chefs on the show. It's been fantastic to talk to you as well. But oh, well, thank you. I'm, I'm sorry that n- not only is the hour up, but the two hours are up and All right. more, more than that. But Thank you so much. Oh, gosh, thank you for having me on. Oh, it was fantastic to meet you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, guys, that's Greg Wallock. I'm so happy to have met him. This is one of the most inspiring two hours I've ever had. I love Greg Wallach and I so look forward to seeing him perform live. I've seen heaps of YouTube clips but I would like to see him do it live and I hope to do so really soon. Okay, I'll be back in two weeks, as I said, with Melora Hardin. Thank you so much for listening and thank you Lovisa Olson for editing. Thank you Christina Jörling Biro for being my producer and thank you Stutterheim for being the sponsor. My name is Chris Christopher Triumph, and if you want to follow me on Twitter, that's at Triumph with an F instead of PH. Talk to you in two weeks. Bye bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.